Hi, I'm Akina. And I'm Laurel. And this is Jane Austen Culture Night. In this week's episode, you will find broken collarbones, perpetual estrangements, maps, and women on ships. There will be spoilers and maybe some cursing. This week, we're reading chapters 7 through 8 in Persuasion. These chapters are really, really, really exciting. Yeah, this is like, you know, the the beginning is establishing the world around Anne Elliot, and now in these chapters, it's like we're we're we finally like dive deep into her mind, yes. and you're seeing what's happening inside of her while all of this stuff is going on around, and it's like so satisfying because she hasn't been that present in the earlier chapters. Um, I know I was just so struck by the real, like how fast everything picks up because in my mind it's slow for a while, but here we are at page 50, which I guess is not that fast, but it feels very fast for me There, everything starts to pick up. And I just think like, wait, I thought it was supposed to be slow for a while longer, but I guess that's just. Jane Austen's great writing where you know there's been this eight year break where Anne Elliot has just been um, pushed around and ignored by her family and I feel like by the time we got to this page 50 I feel so like run down on her behalf and just like you just feel the weight of those years and her life in a, in a way and um, so when everything starts to happen it's just I feel like as almost as unstable as she does. Yeah. There's so much. um, I mean, she describes the experience of like this angst and longing and like insecurity so well. But then there's also so much like subtext. There's so much that's not being said, but you can like feel the tension in it. It's so good. (laughs) so good it's so good and i just really feel like we haven't explained at all what happened so let's summarize what are we actually talking about yeah um so essentially broad strokes is that captain wentworth comes to visit the musgroves yes um at their house Mm -hmm. and then it happens like multiple times in just a couple days right so he is we knew that he was like on his way to come visit. Now he's there. He's yeah. at the main house and um, they're having like a dinner party for him. Um, and so Anne is like anticipating this. But well, even before that, though, he's going to um, Mr. Musgrove went over and called on the crops, which is like you know, that 30 minute morning call. And then by custom, Captain Wentworth was going to come and call on Mm -hmm. him. Um, And she, while he was going to call on Mr. Musgrove, so come over to the house, um, it turns out that Mary and Charles Musgrove's oldest son has like this terrible fall. Yeah. 
And he so, displaces his collarbone, which sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah, and everyone's freaked out. I mean, partially freaked out because this is the oldest son of the oldest mm-hmm. son. So it's like the heir to the Musgrove, like, little estate. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, it kind of upends, like, Mary and Charles and, um, and, and, and Anne, yeah. um, and, and all their plans. Yeah. So, like, that means that while Captain Wentworth is visiting the first couple times, Anne isn't necessarily around because she's taking care of her nephew. Right. And there's this this uh, whole discussion where they have where they were all supposed to go to the main house to meet Captain Wentworth. And uh, but because of the fall, um, Mary and Charles at first are like, oh, we can't go. But then he starts looking better and Charles says, well, I'm, I'm going to go. You can stay. And then, of course, Mary's like, no, I want to go to the party. <laughs> so <laughs> she ends up they the parents go and Anne stays with the boy, which is a very convenient excuse for her to avoid Captain Wentworth as well. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you guys she- go. I'm good. I'll stay here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because Mary, so Anne's younger sister is so excited to meet uh, Captain Wentworth because her sister-in-laws, so Charles's little sisters, are totally head over heels with Cap- in love with Captain yeah. Wentworth. And so, like, they come over to check on their nephew and make sure he's doing okay, but then the whole time they just talk about how fun Captain Wentworth is and how much they love right. him. Um, and yeah, so then Charles got jealous and was like, I want to go out to dinner, you know, I want to go have dinner with him. And then, uh, yeah. And then Mary was like, and he was like, well, because I'm not a woman and obviously like nursing is like up to women. Mm -hmm. And so like as a father, I'm like not going to be helpful at all. And then Mary is like, oh, but. I care too much. Yeah. I have too many nerves. <laughs> um, I'm not going to be any help either. And Anne is just like, yeah, I'm the only one that gets this. Like, I'll I'll stay. Like, I'm already terrified to see Captain Wentworth. Also, like, from the very beginning, Mary has been entirely unhelpful for the care of her own child. Right. Like, it seems like it was Anne who called, who tracked down Charles. It was Anne who tracked down the apothecary. Yeah. It was Anne who like organized the servants and just like has done everything to care for the child. And it seems like even the child cares more for Anne than his own mother because it's they say like he listens to mm-hmm. Anne and is like calmer in her presence. And like listen, as a mom, I know that my children often behave much better with other people than they do with me, but <laughs> I read once that that is a sign that like a good parenting if if uh if you I mean I don't know if that's necessarily what's happening in this no I don't think it is like for you I feel like I'm like because they they like they have the 
they can like push boundaries yeah. and they're like trying things they feel out with safe you, to express their more yeah. negative emotions and to like they their mask comes down they because they feel safe yeah. to do that with you rather than with other yeah. people yeah i totally yeah but I read that and it made me think of that. I'm like, this is not exactly what's happening, but I kind of get no. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can see how like, yeah, Mary is definitely a Mrs. Bennett in the making, if not like a full fledged Mrs. Right. Bennett. And so it's definitely would make sense why you wouldn't want her around anyone who's in. Pain. This is, this is where I feel like the new adaptation like really has a fun play on Mary. Like they, I feel like uh. they did her character really well. Um, Cause she has this whole, when, when they're talking about her son, she has this whole speech and she, she goes like, you see, I'm an empath. <laughs> like, it's uh. all like, that's, <laughs> like, Oh, that's so good. That's such a good, like modernization of this character. <laughs> That's hilarious. I feel like whenever I feel like hopefully it's not being used so much today as it has been the past few years. But whenever I've heard someone call themselves an empath, I always just think like, oh, you haven't been to therapy. <laughs> right. Like, oh, you have like trauma and you like, yeah, it's like coming out in this codependent way because you haven't taken care of yourself. Yeah, I I remember seeing like a meme or a video or something not too long ago being like, are you an empath or are you just hyper vigilant and aware of everybody else's feelings because you were traumatized as a child? And I was like, oh, damn. Uh, I hate when like a meme can just like strike you down for the day. Right? It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it's like. Oh, I'm ouch. being attacked. Why did you hurt me? <laughs> I didn't even do anything to you. Yeah. But Mary is like this. Um, she's a very like, uh, you know, spiritual bypassing kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. Wait, Where what she's, does that mean? Spiritual bypassing. So she, the way she uses like, I'm an empath. It's uh. in a way to like. Uh, for her, it's not like she uses all of these like spiritual terms or like nice reasoning or something, but it's, it's in, a, but she uses them as a way to like deflect from uh. what's actually happening or to, to actually deal with any of the problems. Oh, um, that makes sense. Okay. I love that term. I haven't, I feel like that's putting, that's. Uh, making a lot of sense to me because I and because there's been something that's always bothered me, which is like when people say like, "Oh, I don't pay attention to the news," or "I don't, yeah. I don't, I try not to read," or like, "Why do you read about that stuff?" Um, yeah, and it comes. It's like I'm too sensitive, or I'm like, I'm it's too much for me. I'm too, yeah, I'm too much of a sensitive person. And I always just think like, that's really selfish. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like a way to just like privilege yourself. And I'm saying that as someone who's like currently mostly taking a break from the news or trying to cut down a little bit. But right. I feel like when I'm in, uh, I do sometimes dip in and out 
but I try and pay attention to what's happening because I feel like at least I can be a witness to what's happening and an informed citizen, even if like I'm not like, I feel like that's the least I can do. Right. To be aware of other people's pain, even if like that's all I am in that situation. Right. Well, and there's, uh, you know, the, the privilege comes from the fact that you can consume news or turn off the news yes. because it doesn't affect your everyday life. Yeah. But for people whose lives are actually affected, even if they turn off the, the news on the television or yeah. on their computer or whatever, like when they go out into the world, stuff is happening <laughs> yeah. to them with, you know, that their affects bodies- their everyday life. Yeah, yeah, their bodies are being policed. They're, yeah. Yeah. And then I feel like I haven't heard people claim that so much in the past few years because I feel like there's been a little bit more of an awareness of like right. um, our duty as citizens. Right. But um, yeah, it. Anyway, we're getting so sad. I mean, we always do. This is part of this. Yeah, Mary would totally be like, oh, I don't watch the news because, like, I don't like to invite that kind of negativity into my life. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, It's funny that you mentioned the new version because I feel like the 96 version does such an amazing job with these characters where I just, like, keep imagining them in my head when Mary and especially when Mary and Charles are talking like Charles like being like I don't know like a little bit more gentle and thoughtful than Mary but like and a little bit suffering but still just like two incompetent people who are very selfish yeah yeah they're both still like a very selfish couple they're like we want to go to the party yeah (laughs) like there are other people they have servants and they have and they have other people that can look after their children yeah (laughs) like we want to go to the party a day earlier i was worried that like my kid was dying and today i want to go party and it's like okay yeah he's still in pain yeah yeah. Unless they've like loaded up him on cocaine or whatever they did back then. <laughs> He's probably like covered right. in leeches and opium. <laughs> and I think there's a, you know, there's this, I mean, this is my, maybe more of a modern perspective too on like childhood and child children's development too. But there's like zero acknowledgement of a child's emotional state of like, you know, he's physically like getting better now, but like, it's not great to leave your child and go to a party while they're still recovering. Like, how do they feel emotionally about that? And how are you supporting them in that way? So <laughs> I feel like still, I'm, I mean, I know like the, like the idea of childhood, like didn't really even exist back then, but yeah, I feel like you know, any other parent back then would have been worried about like nursing a right. sick child back to health. Well, yeah, I mean, Jane Austen's obviously critiquing yeah their their parenting here, and Anne and you know Anne steps in to give that care. Yeah. So, so so Charles and Mary come back with talk about how wonderful the party is. Um, Anne is just, like, relieved that she didn't get to go. Um, But then it turns out 
that she can't escape Captain Wentworth any mm. longer because he's decided because everyone loves him and so they've invited him to come go hunting with Charles the next morning and right. um and it's, it's so interesting so they're like <sighs> okay first we'll have breakfast at the cottage which is where Charles lives with you know his wife Mary and now Anne. Uh, so they're going to have breakfast and then go hunting. But all of a sudden, breakfast is, like, moved to the great house where the older Musgroves and the and the younger Musgroves live. Um, and no one is sure, like, why they decided to move to breakfast at the great house. But Anne mm-hmm. thinks she knows, which is why is like, she's thinking, oh, Captain Wentworth doesn't want to see me at all. Yeah, and so he's trying to avoid me. Yeah, I think they they he, they make a point of him saying like, "Oh, I don't want to disturb the cottage while your son isn't well. Still, like, I don't want to be in the way. Let's do it." He says something like that, but Anne's like, "That's just an excuse to avoid me, and he doesn't want to see me." You just hear like so much back and forth with Anne in her mind about okay about like. She's minutely um, analyzing what Captain Wentworth is thinking. She's saying, obviously, he doesn't want to come over here. Obviously, he's ignoring me. Um, But also, it's been eight years. He's probably forgotten all about me, and he probably doesn't care at all. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm just a fool for worrying about this. Right. And... I feel like Jane Austen does a great job of just like flitting in and out of Anne's thoughts where she's like describing a situation. And then you also hear what Anne is thinking. And then you just like hear it all as it's like kind of big picture, which I just love. Yeah. Um, So uh, he eventually, so after breakfast, he does come down to the cottage and it's like two minutes. It's a very brief and they kind of see each other, like half make eye contact, and then, uh, you know, then they go out hunting or whatever. Um, and then Anne is left there to like, who she says it's over, it's over. She was just like she's been anticipating it, and she's like, okay, now it's done. The first meeting is done. It reminded me of like Jane in Pride and Prejudice when she's saying like uh, when Bingley comes back after after they had been apart and she's like I just want to get it over with the it, the first meeting will be the hardest and then after that like I'll forget about him you know but it just um spirals into yeah and going into like this oh just so much angst <laughs> There were, I wrote in my, I wrote in my book, so emo. (laughs) But it's like totally like first love or second love or whatever. It's like totally the falling in love experience where everything is heightened and you feel like you're going crazy because you just like don't know what's happening. Um, Yeah. And you're trying to convince yourself that everything will be okay. I love that that passage there where she's talking about like it's been eight years and how how much has changed in eight years it's so long it's a third of my life and yet in this moment it's like nothing's changed you know like all of those same feelings come back and it and she's talking about how eight years is is nothing 
Um, it's just this amazing, <sighs> yeah. amazing description. You're like, yes, I feel it. <laughs> yeah. So the it that is so um, tragic, almost, and it gets even worse because she. Um, so she stays at the cottage, and the Miss Musgroves, which are Charles's younger sisters who are like in their late teens and Mm -hmm. Mary have walked with the men a little bit and then they come back and then they tell Mary just tells Anne (laughs) oh Captain Wentworth is like so gracious to us but he's not very nice to you and then um Henrietta so one of the Miss Musgroves asked him what he thought of you and he said you were you were so altered, he should not have known you again. Yeah. And so Anne now just <sighs> has something to play in her head over and over and over, which is altered beyond his knowledge. So just saying that those eight years have aged her so much that he doesn't recognize her anymore. Yes. And so she's so like, oh, it's devastating to hear that. And then she compounds it with the the fact that when she saw him, he was so handsome and he's aged so well. And that age has like made him even more appealing, which yeah. like, yeah, hashtag women aren't allowed to age. <laughs> this whole thing, like men can men can age gracefully. But yeah, she's just like, Oh, it's so heartbreaking. It's so sad. Poor Anne. I bet in his mind, maybe this is me trying to give him more credit than he's due, but I bet in his mind, like, Anne has gone from, like, like an excitable, like, teenager, you know, pink yeah. and, and, and round-cheeked, and now she's, like, more an adult face, and I feel yeah, like... more mature. She, yeah, and I feel like she could have changed a lot without her actually being, like, so-called ugly, even if that, like, right. matters or doesn't matter. Or Right. You know. He says that she's altered, but, yes. but, but he doesn't say the connotation that Anne takes it yeah. is that that's a negative thing, but we don't necessarily know that that's how he meant it. You know, he's, you know, altered is a very neutral term. Yeah. (laughs) But, and we see this throughout the entire novel of Anne's perception. She immediately perceives the negative. Yeah. Of him thinking negative of her. Like the reason he didn't come to breakfast was he didn't want to see her. And, you know, he, he thinks she's altered in a bad way. Yeah. And, all of these, yeah, all of these, all of these things. So, um, yeah, poor Anne, very low like, self-esteem. I know. Well, she's been beaten down so much yeah. by her family. And then I'm, she's like quiet and serious and like, yeah, eight years older, probably doesn't have any more ba- baby fat. Like she, yeah. of course she's going to look different. She's been told by her father and her sister repeatedly that she has aged in a bad way, that she has lost her bloom. And of course, society in general at this time, you know, as a woman in her late 20s, it's like, oh, you're getting towards the danger years, right? And so there's, yeah, there's, there's every, every reason for her to think of it in a negative way. Mm -hmm. 
It's really funny, like, starting to read this book as a teenager and thinking Anne was so old and now yeah. reading it as someone who's much older than Anne being like, you babies, you're still yeah. babies, you're yeah. in your late 20s, both of you, you yeah. have so much time, you're just starting to figure everything out, don't worry about it, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> so then the chapter ends with... Um, a little conversation between Frederick Wentworth, so Captain yes. Wentworth, and his sister. When he tells his sister, oh, like, I'm back on land. I am totally ready to get married. Um, if any, the first girl between 15 and 30 who smiles at me, I'll want to marry her. And right. he says that kind of knowing that his sister is going to push back on him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't want just like a pretty girl that smiles at you like you want like someone who's like kind and thoughtful and like a really actually good match right so it's this like little conversation with him where he's like they're both poking fun at him right um and um i underlined so at the end of that passage you know he's talking about the type of woman he wants a strong mind with sweetness of manner. Um, that is the woman I want. Something a little inferior I shall, of course, put up with, but it must be, it must not be much. If I am a fool, I shall be a fool indeed. And I highlighted this part, for I have thought on the subject more than most men. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> Jane, Austen, Jane Austen does a great job of like having people who love each other, like, really hurt each other. Yeah. But in a way that, like, is, like, pretty for... It's, like, forgivable once they talk about it and stuff. But she does a great job of showing that in a way... I feel like most pop culture, when people are terrible with each other, it's, like, really, really bad. Like, I cheated on you, or you know, I betrayed you, like, somehow, like, really deeply. Yeah. Or it's, like, something kind of abusive that, like, you're supposed to get over somehow. Or even, like, Jane Eyre, where, like, yeah, you're, like, oh, if I'm actually putting on my thinking hat, like, that's a very awful abusive situation (laughs) where, like, multiple, like, the power dynamics are not in Jane's favor, and it's, like, very shitty. But in this, it feels like this in persuasion, it feels like two equals who are just like figuring things out. And like, yeah, if you're in a relationship with someone, sometimes like feelings get really badly hurt. Right. I think um, towards what you're talking about is like Jane Austen gives these really small moments a sense of gravity and a sense of like magnitude in in the emotion that they carry and it's like yeah sometimes the smallest thing can like devastate you yeah <laughs> just being in a room with someone that you used to love and they're talking to other people and you're remembering what happened and how it failed and thinking what if and like the 
that she gives those those moments such a beautiful like poetic nuance and gravity and and how they can affect you like yeah, yeah. it doesn't have to be some some big dramatic betrayal it's like yeah. these these small moments that um really that make up this novel yeah. in a lot of ways um but but they carry so much weight yeah yeah it's so heavy and it's so it feels so true in a way where sometimes when I see people trying to attempt this especially in movies it's like I can't actually be like I can't actually really follow along or I'm like confused why the main characters give a shit about each other. <laughs> and in this, I'm just like along for the ride. Like they're shaking my fist with Anne when Captain Wentworth hurts her. And I'm just like so yeah. sold on the reality of what's going on. Yeah. So they end eventually they do end up at like a dinner party or a gathering together. Yes. And so he's talking to everybody else and there's all these conversations going on and she's just kind of like overhearing what he says. And again, like taking a lot of what he says as like the subtext underneath it yes. is that he's moved on and he doesn't like her. But then there are some instances where she's like, oh, I think he's referring to me and how could he not – how could he – like, like she's like, it's impossible that he's completely moved on. Like there has to still be some feeling there. And she has these moments where she feels that, but then she doubts herself. And it's, this is just all going back and forth. Um, yeah. So he's yeah, mostly, I, she's overhearing him talk to the Miss Musgroves who are Louisa and Henrietta, who are just pestering him about questions about like what the ship is like. Right. Um, because they have crushes on him and they're just like, and he's, like, happy to talk about it. Um, yeah, he sometimes says, like, that was in year six, in the year six. Or that happened right. before I went to sea in the year six. And she's thinking, like, does that... Like, it seems the way he's talking about it, like, he's... Because he went to sea, like, right after she right. Anne rejected him. So so they both his, know that that was the same year that she yeah. broke his heart. And it's like he's saying it without saying it. He's, like, dancing around this. Yeah. And yeah. He, it, it feels like for him, the way he sees his life, it's like that's the BCAD moment. Is mm -hmm. like is like, Anne broke my heart, and then I went to sea, and that's how I, like, kind of think about my time at sea is, like, how far removed I was from that situation. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, uh, so Louisa and Henrietta are just asking him a bunch of questions, and then he ends up explaining, like, just his naval career, that he was on this really leaky ship, or it was a really old ship for a few years, he, like, makes a joke about, like, how the Navy said it's, like, only worth, like, keeping around, like, near port. But then they sent him to, like, what they call the West Indies, which is a very long journey. Um, and then Anne keeps getting distracted by Mrs. Musgrove, Mary's mother-in-law, because Mary, she's just, like, doing that dinner party thing where someone just, like, 
there's a big conversation going on and then someone just keeps murmuring little asides to you so you can only right. hear what they're saying and not the big picture. And so Anne is like a little bit frustrated because she wants to eavesdrop on Captain Wentworth, but she can't, yeah. which I also <laughs> empathize with her about that. <laughs> And uh, Miss Musgrove keeps talking lo- louder and louder about her son, the son that Jane Austen Dick was Musgroves. like. Thank God he died early. <laughs> Until finally Captain Wentworth like has to respond to her. And yeah. then when he does, it's like Anne can tell for a second when he hears Dick Musgrove's name that he's yeah. like, Yeah, that kid was like no good. Just like yeah. a kind of the look in his eyes. Right. But he immediately switches, like he immediately like rushes over to Mrs. Musgrove's side yeah. and tells her like all about her son and, you know, what Right. And he's like he consoling her in her grief and like being so sweet. And Anne is sitting on the same couch. Yes. She's sitting right next to Mrs. Musgrove. And then he's next to Mrs. Musgrove on the other side. And you're, and it's this moment where she's like, oh, my God, we're we're on the same couch. And like, is he looking at me? Is he not? Like, I can't like. <laughs> or they like, also point out like Mrs. Musgrove is like so much bigger than Anne. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like he probably can't see her. Right. But it's like this veil between them and they're both right. on the couch. Yes. It's like Ugh. he's right there, but you can't get to each other. Yeah, it's it's an interesting moment. And then um, the um then somehow they end up talking about like why Captain Wentworth is like I would hate to have a woman on my ship. Oh yeah, I the women on ships women discussion. On ship. And um, <laughs> his sister, which is ridiculous, because his sister, Mrs. Croft, or Sophia, it seems like her name is. Um, yeah. She's like, hey, I just like lived like fifteen years on a ship. Like, what right. are you talking about, little girl? You're wild. And and they're like. Dude, you just you just ta- told us how you helped your buddy get his wife and uh, pre- you like transported them on your ship to go see your friend there, you know, his husband. And uh, he's like, uh, what are you talking about, dude? And he's like, well, it's the principle of the thing. Yeah, he was like <laughs> d- the whole time I was transporting my wife, uh, my friend's wife, her sister, her cousin and three of her children. Yeah. He's like, the whole time I knew it was a bad idea, but I did it for him. And you're like, okay. Yeah. He's like, I just, he's a classic nice guy moment where he's like, I just respect women too much to put them (laughs) in a situation where like they can't have all of their servants and all of the finery that they're accustomed to. And Mrs. Croft, who again, has been on a ship for 15 years is like, shut up. You don't even know what you're talking about. Um, And I I was just interested there because I feel like this gets to a larger question, but you're like, well, servants are sometimes women. I mean, not usually on a ship, but it's just interesting to think of like what, what his definition of woman is, is like an upper class woman, not like. Right. Like how much, how much labor do 
tons of women actually do that yeah. these gentlemen who never get their hands dirty yeah. <laughs> would like fall over. To... <laughs> um, yeah, this this passage always strikes me as like this kind of like naive take, right? Yeah. Because they go back and forth of like, well, you'll feel di- differently when you're married. And he's like, well, I can't argue with that because I don't know. Um, it, it always reminds me of that conversation around like, when you meet somebody who doesn't have kids and like mm. you're a parent and they have all of these ideas about like, well, when I'm a parent, I'm not going to let my kids do this or I'm going to have these rules. And you're just like, OK, <laughs> like call me in five years. We'll see how that goes. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it, it happens with everything where I feel like or. Yeah, or, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's funny though, because it does feel like, okay, Captain Wentworth, like you haven't actually been around women for yeah. eight years. You've just been on a ship. And so right. you think that women, like, it, it kind of feels like, you know, the classic, like, nice guy who, like, lives in the his parents' basement and, like, yeah. just you know watches women on porn and plays video games all day and yeah. like that's his experience of women is just like a, in a screen it's not in well, his daily life at all yeah i think also like wentworth he's the type of guy who likes to come off as very confident yeah he he likes to in some ways be the center of attention like he's telling all of these like um adventure stories from being at sea but Deep down, like him being at sea was full of pain and separation. And and this was like a distraction for him to get over the heartbreak of Anne. And so to hear him talk about, I don't want women on ships. It feels like a subconscious, like, yeah. You know, the way that he's trying to separate his thoughts from like, no women here. I'm getting over all the women on my ship with a lot of men, you know, because he's been heartbroken. (laughs) Like, it's this very, like, dude way of doing it. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit like me thinks thou protest too much. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It definitely feels like a fragile, a place of kind of like fragility his fra- yeah his fragile feelings that he needs to kind of process yeah. and, and it's kind of like he comes up with this reason yeah. of uh, you know this this higher principle that he's supporting um but it's like masking this really vulnerable place yeah you know? and i feel like it doesn't bother me as much as most nice guy speeches because it feels like very paper thin like even his yeah. sister is like you're being dumb and he's like maybe yeah. i am and it's like right so it, it feels like it's not with a lot of menace behind it and it's like an easily changed opinion right they're like you don't actually know mean this like <laughs> Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. the evening ends with uh dancing and for once um someone asks why isn't Anne dancing? Because she's just playing the piano like she always does for like hours. Mm-hmm. And it's Captain Wentworth. She over I think does she, she overhear asks. her? Yeah. Or, she she overhears she, them. Yeah. He asks um one of the Musgroves, I think. I think Lisa so. or Henrietta, yeah. 
just doesn't like, Anne ever dance? And then they say like, oh, no, never. She has quite given up dancing. She had rather play. She is never tired of playing. And it's like, um, so she just like plays the whole time. And then she goes to, you know, get a drink and she comes back and he's in her seat. Yeah. He's like trying to, he's trying to remember a tune and show off to the Musgrove sisters. And then, Mm -hmm. but as soon as he sees her, he's like, oh my God, I'm sorry, I'm in your seat. And then he like runs away essentially. And then (sighs) she sits down to play more. And I feel like that feels so heartbreaking. That moment, like, again, it's like the smallest moment, but it's the subtext of it. It's like, yeah, I when he says, I beg your pardon, madam, this is your seat. I felt that like a gut... (laughs) punch like oh yeah because <laughs> like as soon as she comes it's like he's running away from her but it's the again w- she's gonna say this in the next chapter but it's like this cold politeness that's like worse than yeah. if he had just outright yelled at her and been mad and been like you broke my heart and i still hate you you know but it's like this this coldness that she's I just think like they oh. call studied politeness yes yes oh. Oh. it's rough yeah and this is like uh i feel like this is like the heart of the novel this is what makes the the tension of it so good so just yeah just the angst the longing the like this is where the meat of it is um yeah it's these two chapters were so exciting. I had to keep pausing to like write down notes and um mm-hmm. I yeah, I I feel like there's so much I want to talk about and then there's so much that I like also just like want to keep researching and talk about yeah. and there's like so many things that we need to talk about later like they mentioned a friend of his who was like maybe injured and mm-hmm. so we'll find out more about him later. Right. Um but for the big question I had right now was just like, how did he get to be so rich? And I feel like we've talked about this a little bit before, um, yeah. but I needed a refresher. And so I like did a little bit of research. I think you did too. Just like how uh, Wentworth could go from essentially being like a penniless guy I mean, he had connections and stuff, so it wasn't like he was, like, an actual person right. who right. needed money. Um, it wasn't, but he, like, didn't really have a fortune, and then he comes back. I think they say, like, he has about 25,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds, something like that, which mm-hmm. apparently, like, it seems to be worth... Okay, so we're speaking in late 2022, so the pound to the dollar is, like, very wild right now. Yeah. And just, like, inflation has been ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say roughly he's coming back with, like, under $3 million um, today. But, like, that's just, like, a ballpark. Right. And that's also, like, buying power because, yeah. yeah. Well, because 
like housing and stuff. It's like, never going to be a complete one to one. Yeah, with inflation and everything, housing was like much cheaper. So yeah. they like I was reading that like a regular sailor on a ship would get about like thirty six, thirty seven pounds a year as their payment. So that is like just like four grand for yeah. like a year's work, which so I feel like in my mind I'm like if four thousand dollars was like a full year's work for like the lowest paying person on a boat, then that's like I would clock that as maybe forty grand today. Yeah. Um and so that would actually bump up his um, power purchasing power to more like thirty million dollars. Whoa. Anyway, I'm just saying he's <laughs> like a millionaire because I feel like when I say three million dollars, I'm like a fucking like tiny ass one bedroom house in my neighborhood costs like a million dollars right now. <laughs> like that's like nothing, you know. Right. Right. Um, you know, he could like maybe buy a shack in LA County and pay off his student loans, but like I think it's like a lot more than that, like when we think of it. Um yeah, and how he would get this money is he would I think we had mentioned this before, he would capture ships. Yeah, enemy ships. Enemy ships. So oftentimes it was the French ship where yeah. they were going back and forth for their own to to their own um, colonies, or oftentimes it was a privateer ship. So privateers were like pirates, where they would just they weren't under the employ of any army, but they did have papers. And so, like a French privateer would have papers by the government of France protecting its the people on board. Mm. because they would agree to only go after like English and Spanish colonies or mm. boats. So they were like pirates who were like, kind of, it sounds like the mafia kind of where they were like, yeah. we'll only like mercenaries. Go, yeah. If pirates. you're paying yeah. us like protection money, we are only going to go after your rivals. So got it. So, and those privateers were on ships that like did not have the same kind of like literal, like gun, power that like you know that the british ships had you know they just had like some guns and not like huge ass cannons so a ship a captured ship would be worth like i've read they were worth like sometimes 20 to 30 thousand pounds so again that's like millions of dollars like upwards of two or three whatever millions because the navy would pay for the ship they would count up how much the ship cost the cargo, any ammunition on the ship, and you'll get a bounty of like five pounds per captured sailor. And then the captain would get three eighths of that amount. So that's almost a half of that. So a captain would get like, um, you know, a few million up to a couple million dollars for a ship. And then everyone else on the ship would get a cut, but until later, the cut was like very small. It was equal to like essentially a six month salary. So that's Mm -hmm. great. They say that's great for a hot hour of work, you know, Mm -hmm. but you have to be like really lucky. Yeah. It seems like a huge gamble because you have to be really lucky to catch a ship. 
you like there was a lot of people being maimed and injured and killed. Right. And then um, you have to have been on the right assignment. Like if you were just set, if you were just sent to be part of the blockade against Napoleon, it would, you probably wouldn't be catching any ships. You had to be right. like on a different route. Right. So it was like a high stakes feels like kind of like the tech industry bros right now. It's like high stakes and you like, you don't know which startup is like gonna profit. And um, <laughs> Well, yeah, it takes a lot of people, resources. Yeah. It takes a lot of resources and it's a gamble to like go after another ship because you don't know how much damage your ship's going to take. It's a risk. You don't yeah. know how many people you're going to lose. Uh, you you might not win. You may underestimate your the enemy ship, so it's a huge gamble. And I've always uh, read his experience in like I've always inferred that he could that his ability to like go after and be really successful in capturing ships was a little bit of this recklessness mm. on his part because he was like, I have nothing to lose and I'm going to prove myself, you know, in this mentality of getting over Anne and going to sea to, to make his fortune. It was like, I've got nothing to lose. And yeah. that was something that like, luckily paid off for him <laughs> yeah and then it's alluded that it doesn't pay off for everyone um yeah. and also he his first ship he was assigned to was called the asp which is an yeah. interesting name and he says it's like it was a really old boat and it was falling apart but he says it was like his savior and he alludes to like being like kind of in an awful position before the boat mm -hmm. before he got assigned to that ship and then that ship like kind of saved his life and mm -hmm. he had nothing but good experiences with her and like not even any storms out at sea when he was on that boat right um and it was uh i don't know you just think of like he's kind of heavily implying to Anne that he's talking about how the book, the boat like kind of saved him after this heartbreak. Right. right. Cause the, and this, he's talking about, I wanted to be at sea. I had to be at sea. And so he took that first opportunity he could get and he was lucky to get it even, even on this old rickety ship. <laughs> so while he was at sea, so I'm confused about, about world events around 1805, 1806. While he yeah. was at sea, what was happening was Napoleon... So Napoleon had started a blockade, right? Um, I don't know all okay. of the specifics. I, when, right now, though, in the story around like 1814... Um, Napoleon is in exile and that's okay. why he's come home. So the Napoleonic Wars have been going on for like 10 years. Um, and, uh, then, or something like that. And then, uh, yeah. And then Napoleon's exiled. So there's this moment of peace and um, that's why all of these naval officers are coming home and they need to rent houses and they're looking for wives because they're thinking, I can settle down now. I've made my fortune. And we're like, you know, um, 
a year later, he's going to come back. And then, you know, you're going to have the Hundred Days War and all of that stuff. Okay. But, um, yeah, the Napoleonic Wars were huge and involved, like, all of Europe and a lot of the Middle East countries and, like, everybody was involved. It's <laughs> crazy that. because I don't think we studied that, like, at no. all in, in school. Barely I don't remember. anything. Yeah. I, I feel like I um, – didn't really, I I feel like we got some lessons about like the French Revolution and the yeah. ki- and the kings like for a hot minute and like a hot that minute. was it. We and of course the War of eighteen twelve we studied, yes. which yeah. was the British, yeah, um, you know, war in America between between the United States and Britain. So that like just happened yeah the war of 1812 um there's also at this time the british empire is still colonizing and expanding its empire so there are um uh all of these uprisings in a lot of the different colonies you had in the early 1800s you had um ireland uh the there were there was a war between the irish independent uh movement there the irish rebellions then you had um australia there were wars against the aborigine tribes in australia there's um the east india company is doing its thing in india um there's all kinds of conflict there there's conflict in the north african um countries the colonies um and yeah this empire is spread pretty thin. And at the same time, they're also getting involved in wars against Spain. The, the Spanish-American wars are going on I think that's- in South South America. And, oh. and uh, it's part of the South American War or it's part of the Spanish-American wars. And then uh, Britain gets in, is involved in those two. Um because they're like fighting against Spain, basically, and uh, yeah, they've they've got a lot going on. <laughs> like, who are they of- not at war with? They're, they're probably war easy. With everybody, and this is why I think this is why this um, and and they had been at war previously for years and years, and also there's been um all of this upheaval in like the royal families and stuff. Which I don't know the history of that uh, as much either, but like, you know, the successions with the kings uh, and the, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots and all of these different things. It's just like generations and generations of like upheaval and uh, political turmoil and wars in Europe is just like known for having lots of wars all the time. And it's so wild. Yeah, it's wild. So. Yeah, so this 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 eighteen fourteen, there's still a lot going on, but I think the Napoleonic Wars were such a huge thing that like this lull in that felt like such a reprieve, and yeah. this sort of like newfound quietness in peacetime, and this like oh, we can rebuild, we can like you know focus on other things. In the book that I was reading, um. The, the Jane Austen, The Secret Radical, the Helena Kelly book. I, I reread the um, 
persuasion chapter, and she was talking about how there were a lot of advances in science during this period mm. um, in the 1800, like early mid 1800s. Um, they were finding fossils and um, you had like Mary, what was her name? Mary. Um, anyway, she was a scientist who like did work with fossils and stuff and, and um, uh, theories of evolution were starting to mm. develop and um, yeah, it just makes you think like society is moving in this more progressive, even secular direction. I yeah, there's that whole like thing about how George Washington wouldn't have known that he didn't know that dinosaurs existed because they right. only figured that out. Yeah, around this time, maybe a little yes. later. Yes, it's wild. Yeah, uh. they're finding like the first uh, the first fossils of dinosaurs and stuff, and like they they specifically in Lyme where they go walking on the beach. You can find um, like ammonite shells and all of these, oh, like the yeah. way because of the limestone and stuff, they've preserved a lot of things. So they've found a lot of fossils there. It's funny because like even in ancient Greece, like there were they would find like bones of like mammoths and other yeah. things like that. Um, but they just they didn't know about like time and stuff right. and that they were fossils so they just like always assumed that those bones meant that there was monsters like monster just over that hill or just Minotaur. over that mountain yeah yeah, yeah these these and that's uh, how we Greek get all monsters. those monsters yeah and people say that's how we get the dragon myths in yeah. like medieval europe too is that like maybe they found dinosaur bones and they thought it was a dragon <laughs> Or that's when you like people like send home like a specimen of the platypus and everyone's like, oh, they're putting us on. This creature can't actually exist. Yeah. To get back to like naval stuff, like, um, you know, Navy, like people who are on ships, they used to draw these maps of, Uh, you know, charting their courses. But then they would also put drawings of like these sea monsters yeah you know and so you can just think like oh these people are out at sea they see like a giant squid or like a whale or something and they're like ah you know and it's like exaggerated or like yeah these myths about sea monsters and uh stuff like that that get imprinted into the mythology but then also the consciousness of it it's yeah it's very interesting yeah um and i read that sometimes they would put like you know there be here be dragons or whatever on the map also just meant like don't go over here it's dangerous it's just like yeah this is a dangerous spot yeah i'm always interested in in things that feel very solid like a map feels very solid like here's the trail you take to go on your hike and then how how it's like once you like really look at it it shifts all the time like it feels Mm. like an immutable fact that shifts like like you know I'm old enough that I do remember like old globes at school would have like USSR written on it and just like how these maps are always changing but I feel like at least in my mind I just always think of like you know the map that my sixth grade 
teacher would just like pull down that was like above, you know, she had like one of those hanging maps above her um, chalkboard. Yeah. And that is like the map that and like to be all end all and um, but it's probably changed like how many dozens or scores of times since since it was printed. Yeah. We did, um, my kids did a geography course a couple of years ago when we were homeschooling and like I would sit on those classes sometimes and the teacher was obsessed with maps <gasps> and, um, I wish I so took she, the class. yeah, it, it was good. It was really fun. And she would always, she talked about, so she talked about like how maps were developed and how yeah. originally, especially in Europe, maps did not. Like you couldn't just look at a map and have it correspond to line up with like, this is how far away this thing is from this. Yes. It's like, wasn't relevant. It would just be like, here's Europe and it's a blob. And then there's another blob over here. And they were like, they were not representational of the real world layout of how things were. And then eventually people started trying to figure that out and actually like, you know, measure things and chart it. And then um, you get like the Mercator projection, which was ended up being very good for sailing because it take it, it did um, longitude and latitude and all of this kinds of stuff to like pinpoint exact locations. But because the earth is round, you uh, can't ever perfectly represent yeah. how, how things are on a flat surface on a map. So the Mercator projection allows for good navigation, but it distorts the size. Whenever you flatten stuff out, you're either going to have to distort um, like the distance between things or, or you're going to get this weird distortion in how big certain countries are to others. So like if you look at um, – most a lot of the maps that are like in classrooms it looks like greenland is humongous yes right when in actuality it's it's not that big at all and and you know africa looks much smaller or it looks like about the same size as south america but it's actually like huge and so it the way that things get distorted and the choices that you make of like how am i going to represent this and so there's all of these different people who have tried to make different maps in different ways to represent things to be most accurate and um yeah it's pretty trippy if you go and look at other people other projections of maps (laughs) and it just gives you this it makes you realize like oh this is all like man-made perceptions and and there's different ways to view the world literally yeah I find it endlessly fascinating and I have a total soft spot in my heart for the maps that just don't even try and they like make the countries even like the old maps that would like I feel like I've seen one that like drew England but kind of made it look like a lion and they just like play with the borders and try I don't know or yeah. just like the New Yorker <laughs> drawing of America where like New York is really huge. And then you see <laughs> California over there. And then like the in-between parts is just like real Nothing. tiny. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's my, I feel like I love it because I, I went down this crazy rabbit hole in grad school researching about like musical scales and mm. about how what we think of as the A note has shifted over time. And like, even back then in the 1700s and 1800s, 
different towns would have different A notes. Like a mm-hmm. whole orchestra would tune to a like a different sound and they would call that an A. And it varied yeah. dramatically. It's, and if you were traveling frequ- it's the yeah. frequency thing. There's this yeah. whole thing There's in music too. Thing. So yeah. four forty Hertz. The 440 frequency hertz. is the the general conception of a yeah but then there's like the the there are 432 people, people yeah and then there's yeah there's a- <laughs> and some of those fourth i i'm on the 432 side just to be clear but i also think most of those people are bananas because they're like the 432 is like the frequency that's of nature and yep. of um and it's a healing frequency, speaking yes, yes, of like yes. spiritual bullshit. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's, it, it can it's, get very, it can get very, uh, like woo woo and conspiracy theory rabbit hole. But yeah, the 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 frequency thing in music is definitely a thing, and it's really interesting. It's but also even got a lot of scientific. Stuff yeah, even it. before yeah. then, it was like not just like a difference of like eight hertz. It was like dozens of hertz, where it was yeah. like different. Um, yeah, if you were traveling to Vienna, you would have to like tune your violin differently than if you were traveling to like Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in color, there's like similar ideas in color. And I guess, especially when I was like first leaving the church, like, because I think the color, the music rabbit hole was like the first big rabbit hole I did after leaving the church. And I was like, because my foundations had been shook and I was like, yeah. God isn't real. I don't believe in anything. Like everything I I had been like this foundation that I had been taught is like not actually there. But then like realizing that that was kind of with everything else too. Like I had, I had like played cello as a child and I don't know. I just always thought the A note was the A note and it was like a gift, you know, it was just like yeah. passed down from God. Or you don't something. even think of it. You, you don't, don't even think, think that there's it. other options. Yeah. And then it shifts on you and you're like, I don't know. It was just like this huge mind fuck to me. Um, yeah. And also like really exciting at the same time. Yeah. Is this like the farthest we've ever gotten from talking about Jane Austen? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, how are we going to bring this back? How do we, uh, what's the transition here? <laughs> so sometimes. So they were playing a, what, what do you think their piano were, was tuned to? Was or it were a 440? They, <laughs> did they say piano? Because was it like. Oh, a, it might not have been a piano forte. It could have been a harp, harpsichord, a harpsichord or yeah. Or like or a she square could piano have or easily, something. She could have easily tuned then. Right. She could have gone back to the 432 if she wanted to. Yeah. So there, we did it. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like this could be a double episode. Hopefully people are still listening. I don't um, know if you if you're still here. We love you. Thank you yeah. for indulging us in our very nerdy tangents. It's not nerdy. I feel like I'm not nerdy enough. I'm like I should know more about all of these things. <laughs> it's universally known that women don't belong on ships, but ladies need to get around too. That's why we've created Ships for Women. Ships for Women is the ideal way to set sail with all the comforts of a Regency drawing room, adorned with fainting couches, a craft room, and a governess on board to mind the children. 
Critics will say it's just a regular ship with more comfortable furniture and a higher price tag. But don't be fooled. Our ships are pink. Ships for women. Do you want to, do we get everything? Do you want to tell me your favorite line? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's so much we could talk about here. Yeah. Like there's notes about feminism when we're talking about Mary and Mrs. Croft and like all of these different things, you know, um, there's, yeah, the whole women on ships conversation. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I like know. there's more that I want to talk about later. Like that's true, about yeah. like injuries and stuff like that. But I, I think we'll get to that in a little bit. We'll get to stuff. Yeah. And yeah. just also like the human cost of like when like like where did that wealth that he got like come from? Like the ship's cargo is like ostensibly like bringing colonial wealth back to England. Yeah. Anyway, we can talk about that another time. I mean, I also underlined when they said West Indies too, because we know that that was a major, major port for enslaved people, for human trafficking. And at this time, England had already outlawed it, I think, in England, but it was still happening. There were still in other countries and um they there were still private citizens who had plantations or who had um you know enslaved people who owned (laughs) these enslaved people who like um were benefiting off of that wealth or even if ostensibly it was outlawed it's like yeah, those sugar plantations, the tobacco plantations, the cotton plantations, yeah. are they like, you know, or like what's happening in India? Like people yeah. are being mistreated if yeah, either they're enslaved or they're being very badly mistreated and you're taking all of this country's wealth right, and taking it back to your country. And that's yeah. built on the backs of people. And again, yeah. I feel like, Maybe we'll get more hints of that later and talk about it later. But it's just something I was thinking about um, in this reading. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's always like this, this underpinning of. Yeah. And especially starting with this chapter where he like talks about like capturing these ships and Mm -hmm. like where he was in the world. So I I know there was also um, conscription happened, too. Mm. So like. Um, you would capture people or like um, you would take poor people would basically be forced into the Navy or into the army (sighs) when war was going on, which was basically all the time. (laughs) So like people could be forced to join the war, you know, could be forced onto these ships. Um, Yeah. And it's like, I love Captain Wentworth and I love Admiral Croft too. Like he seems like a great husband and talks about how he and his wife are like the ideal married couple. They just seem to love each other and enjoy talking to each other and like be like thoughtful people. Um, But the way they talk about war just makes me think of like what's happening now as we record with like, 
Russia and Ukraine. Mm. And it's like, I'm just to like put my cards out there. I'm like very pro Ukraine and I hope that they win and everything. And they hope that they protect their land. But sometimes just hearing people talk about things, you just think like, Oh, this is just like, this is people aren't looking at this as like, with the human casualties in mind, right. this is just like a, a money game for people. And they're like, the defense contractors are just making so much money off of this. Yeah. And like, I don't know, it just makes me sad. Yeah. Do you think it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, Captain One worth telling like his adventures on the ships. It's, it's a little bit, similar to like the way Hollywood glorifies warfare and you get all of these like war movies that are, um, yeah. Those world war two movies, especially where it's like America was the good guy. And it was like, okay, we fought all the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. We just dragged our feet until the very end. And we had like a lot of anti-Semitic people running the country who just turned a blind eye to everything until the last minute. Yeah, and then we dropped a bomb on Japan and killed lots of innocent people. But we won the war, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) It definitely feels like that. Or I I remember reading some interview of an actor who was in one of those World War II movies, and he was talking about how oftentimes when they do a war movie, they'll send, like, the actors to, like, a boot camp. or But it's, like, a boot Mm. camp, like, run not for, for actors. Yeah, yeah, for actors. And then he said that, like... People, it's the math class for football players. Yes. <laughs> and he was like, people say, like... He was like, all my fellow actors were like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm just like, you guys are idiots. Like, we're <laughs> filming a movie. Like, we're not... Like, this is hard, but it's, like, not, like... They're, like, acting like they can compare it to actual war. And it's, like, this right. is nothing like having actual stakes like right being or, worried uh, that about your actual life or the life or they're of getting all of family they're getting all of the like uh indoctrination and bonding yeah. of like being together in a unit and yeah. the like camaraderie and all but all and also the physical stuff without any of the actual trauma of yeah going to war <laughs> yeah and i just thought that exemplified hollywood where it was like oh you don't have the trauma just like the glory and yes. like this like um yeah this self-righteous like confidence or yeah. i don't know and and that's what's so problematic about the depiction of war um well i'm excited to keep reading me too. It's it's getting juicy now. Oh my god! I just found my favorite line, and then I just took out my bookmark because I'm oh so no. Dumb. But I want to say it before you say yours because I feel okay. like you're gonna you're gonna copy me. I mean, I can just pick another one because okay. I have lots there's of them. so many good ones. But the one and there's so many that made me laugh out loud. But the one that like broke my heart the most. Okay, yeah. so this is Anne talking about. Wentworth and Mm -hmm. she said now they were strangers nay worse than strangers for they could never become acquainted it was perpetual a perpetual estrangement 
Yeah. Wow, I just butchered, butchered them. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. That's like, ugh, it hits. And this is one of the reasons, um, this is one of the things that was criticized about the new persuasion is that they changed that line. Um, <sighs> where in like Anne has like this monologue um, and it, they modernize the language. And so she says like, oh, we're worse than strangers. We're exes. And people were just like making fun of it. They're being like, how dare you change this amazingly written line and like turn it into this like cliche phrase. That was a huge criticism of that. Yeah, because uh, just gorgeous, gorgeously devastating. Um, yeah. I want to hear your line, but first I want to say that I have a secret theory that I feel like Hollywood just makes World War II movies because it's an excuse to have, like, a bunch of white guys on screen. <laughs> okay. Oh, damn. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> like, they're like, oh, no, we have to go back to the 40s when women couldn't own bank accounts and they were just stuck at home or men doing all the work. And uh, black people, if they got to go to, you know, if if they volunteered to go to war with us, they had to, like, just make us food. It's all good. Never mind that there were, like, black regiments and, no. uh, you know, uh, Navajo uh, yeah. code talkers and, yeah, like, a lot of uh, diversity. There were, yeah. Not as well represented in our movies. No, no. Yeah. And we're not it, even going to talk about the Japanese internment camps. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like the interesting thing about being alive today, though, is finding out more. Like, we were just talking about with music and maths and art. And just, like, finding yeah. out more histories where you thought you knew it. Yeah. And then you didn't. Like, my one of my favorite of all time historical art movements is abstract expressionism. Like, since I was a, t a nerdy teenager. And I thought, like, I knew everything about all the artists. And I, like, have books on their writing and everything. And then, like, a few years later, this artist comes out. Like, she has a show in New York. And it's like, oh, she was hanging out with all my favorite artists at the Cedar Bar. And she, like, was painting for decades. And just, like, no one gave a shit about her. Mm. And she's actually, like way better than most of the artists that were previously my favorites. Wow. Um, it was just that she was like an artist. I think she's not white. She was like, yeah, she's just this woman who was neglected for years. And that's happening more and more, which is like very maddening to think of like all these women who've been forgotten about and people who yeah. have been forgotten about. But it's also like very exciting to find them and that, um, yeah, it's the most like maddeningly exciting thing to happen to me mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes. You're just like, why didn't I know about this person later? And who else are we forgetting about? But also, yeah. like, this is so exciting. I'm going to go see your work, you know? Yeah, that's why, like, uh, the 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 like shrinking down of history and yeah. the like propagandizing of it and yes. making it into this like simple story. Like that's so boring. Yes. Like it's so fun and interesting and exciting. Like you said, to discover new things and to learn about the nuance and to, to just continue learning your entire life. Like 
it's so boring to be in it's a world where you think you already know everything and then people get so worried about like discovering other people and it's or you know about like at opening up the canon and canceling certain people and oh right. and don't even get me started and cancel that i really won't go there right now <laughs> I, I will at some point but you just think like it's so good for everyone to like yeah. learn about more people like even like in art world we had um, the Guggenheim put on a show of Hilma off Clint like a few years ago before mm. the pandemic. And it's like this woman that no one really knew about. And she died in 1940s. She like lived from the late 1800s 19, to the early 1900s. And she like made all this awesome art. And yeah, no one gave a shit. The Guggenheim, um, I think it was like their most well-attended show in history. I mean, millions of dollars. I'm not the only one I know of that like specifically flew to New York just to see this show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, it's great. I love art. The end. <laughs> <laughs> um the uh have you been speaking of which have you been reading or watching or seeing anything else um like, oh no wait you haven't done telling me your line yet yeah so i will um are you gonna give me yeah two? the one that you said was definitely under was definitely highlighted um but i also yeah i love this line the where i wrote so emo <laughs> and it's Um, where she's talking about the years that have passed. What might not eight years do? Events of every description, changes, alienations, removals, all. All must be comprised in it and oblivion of the past. How natural, how certain too. It included nearly a third of her own life. Alas, with all her reasoning, she found that to retentive feelings, eight years may be little more than nothing. Um, yeah, it's just perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love when Mary um, is like when Anna's like, you know what, Mary, you can go to the dinner party. I'll stay with your son who's like really badly injured. Yeah. And Mary is like, oh, my God, are you? She literally says, are you serious? That's a very good thought. Very good. Indeed. Um, I have no use at home. And it only harasses me. And then she says, you who have not a mother's feelings are a great deal the properest person. Right. (laughs) I just love that. You who have not a mother's feelings. It's like, okay, Mary. Right. (laughs) Um, uh, Have you been reading anything else? Um, Or watching anything else? I'm extremely consumed right now with Taylor Swift's new album Midnights (laughs) okay yeah um I actually started to listen to that the other day because I remembered us talking about it and I was like you know I don't know if I've ever actually listened to her I cannot (laughs) name a song that she's written yeah and I and I knew she just had the album so I had it on in the background for a couple of songs um I didn't listen very closely but now I can like kind of say I listen to her now. Yeah. So what are you thinking? <laughs> um, I really like it. It's um, it's like a pop. You know, it's back to back to pop roots, 
rather than the more folky stuff that she was doing more recently. Um, and yeah, it's, it's good. I like it. I've, I've, it's grown on me the more I've listened to it too. Like the first way through, I was like, okay, I kind of like this song. This one's okay. But the, the more I've listened to it, the more I like it. And I'm also, you know, because I'm on TikTok, I'm extremely invested in all the Gaylor theories and, uh, yeah, so basically it's just a bunch of former English majors using their degrees to, like, dissect every single lyric and prove that Taylor Swift is secretly gay, which is really fun. <laughs> oh, I read this book. Um, it's called Schwet by Claire Oshetsky, I want to say, um, mm-hmm. which I liked. I feel like it was, like, it's not a long book, but I was like, this feels like it was more like a short story that was like maybe expanded into like a novella and it could mm-hmm. have stayed a short story <laughs> or maybe I'm just, I don't know, overthinking it, but it's about this woman who gives birth. It's a novel about a woman in Sacramento who gets pregnant and gives birth to an owl baby and um her husband keeps trying to make the owl baby into like a perfect human child and like take it to all these doctors and she's like secretly feeding the owl baby like live mice when and like trying to take care of it and trying to Mm -hmm. protect it from the husband and like all the people that are trying to change it into something else um i really like i really liked it, even though I said I think it could be a little bit shorter. Um, but I was reading interesting review uh, interviews by the author, and she was talking about how um, this is essentially a story about her becoming a mom and her kid who I think is autistic and um, also trans. And just, like, mm-hmm. having this kid that's, like, not exactly like the other kids in the neighborhood and like how do you protect your child and like take good care of her and like versus and like really listen to them um and yeah just protect them from society at large essentially Mm -hmm. and so that's been really I've, I've actually really loved the interviews of heart um but yeah so that's what i've read lately um i've finally started to read the body keeps the score oh which is a lot less traumatic than i thought it would be Uh uh-huh um i did i hate i kind of hate reading like anything that smacks of self-helpy or anything that's like i'm gonna explain your trauma to you because I go see a therapist and I'm like, I have a person like an expert I talk to and I don't want to listen to any other experts and get all confused about like, what if something's triggering me? And then I'm going to have to like call up my therapist and like ask her to explain this to me or talk me down from something. And it's like, I just want to like go to my therapist. It's like when I got my dog and I'm like, I'm just going to go to a dog trainer and I'm not going to like read all these articles or like listen to these podcasts because then I get too confused about like yeah. what I'm doing. And it's really general advice. It's yeah. Like, 
It, yeah. Like I want to know specifically for me and my own yes because I remember circumstances. I remember trying to listen to a dog trainer podcast and they told me like the or they were saying like the way I was playing with my dog is like traumatizing to the dog and I was like crying to the dog trainer and she was like you're fine the dog's fine I'm looking at the dog very happy with you like don't worry anyway I feel like this is a lot about the science behind it behind trauma by like an actual expert and not some weird like I'm gonna say like Malcolm Gladwell type who just like Mm. essentializes some like complicated ideas and totally like um, misrepresents everything. Mm. Um, but it's like Bessel van der Kock was like around for like the actual, like, f- he like remembers like when PTSD actually got placed in the DSM and like right. he, he was there working with vets and stuff before that was a diagnosis. And so, right. It's like a, it's, I can, now I see why it's a bestseller because, and I also feel like he does a good job of like explaining his, like kind of taking you along in his career. So it's not like all overwhelmingly sciencey and it's like you, you, yeah, it's kind of perfect in that way. So I'm only on like chapter three, but so far I like it. That's good. Yeah, I remember starting that one and then not yeah. completely. I only got through like the first chapter or something, and I didn't keep going, and I haven't gone back to it yet. So, yeah, I feel like it's a book that I've passed in bookstores and libraries for like over a decade now. Being like, I should read that, but I don't want to. Or like, and it's the one that the everybody always recommends paragraph. too. They're like, oh, this book, you got to read this one, and I you're know. like, okay. <laughs> I feel like if you're not ready for it, it's totally fine to not read it. Like, again, I'm going real slow and just, like, reading a little bit at a time. But, like, I do find it really helpful to just, like, break down, like, this is what's happening on your brain. This is why your brain is freezing when it's upset or something. Right. You know, it, it, that is really interesting. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, next Next time we are reading chapters nine and ten. Oh my god, I'm so excited! Let's just like read it and then like get right back onto recording or something. <laughs> like later today. <laughs> oh, I just wanna read it. Just a okay. recording marathon. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This podcast was edited, produced, and the music done by me, Laurel Nakai. The artwork is by Akina Cox. You can get in touch with us at Night at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or um, TikTok at Pod. See you soon. Yeah. Anyway, Putin's bad. That's, that's the take you've heard it here first. <laughs>